Are you one of those people that sees life as one big experiment? How does that work? What happens if we do this? What's that over there? Why did that happen? Yeah, me too. This is a podcast about being curious, being willing to give things a try and not settling for the status quo. Sometimes we fly and sometimes we fall, but there's always a lesson to be learned and a good story to tell. So join me, Nathie Gaffney, and my guests as we share stories of how we've turned fuck-ups into features. Life is short, people. I figure, let's just suck it and see. Those of you tuning in, you who can't see her, but you will when we upload this onto YouTube. She's looking every bit the boho, chic, <laughs> gorgeous. You know, you've got that hippie child vibe going, Nikki. Yeah, I, I look quite unlike Helen, don't I? In this, this. <laughs> yeah, but you've got that seventies. You've got that kind of seventies vibe, and she was, uh, you know, she was she was a queen, and and I'm so so excited uh, to be here talking talking to you. Uh, and you're going to share with us uh, some fantastic stuff about uh, yeah. about your your Helen show, your Helen Ready show. But before we dive into Helen and and all things all things, you know, I am woman, you are woman, we are all women. <laughs> uh, I'd roll. love to. I'd love for you to share a little bit uh, with our listeners, you know, about the about the Nikki Bennett story. I mean, you know, I, I know that you know from childhood, you were a child star, you know, <laughs> national prize winner global cabaret you know <laughs> rocks you know rock musical hair so so tell us a little bit about you know where you came from and, and how you've gotten to this place as a okay I'm going to start by saying because I say this always because it, and there's a reason I say it and it even happened to me yesterday I start every show that I do as me with this statement no matter what anybody thinks I am not Nikki Webster okay never was <laughs> Never will be Nikki Webster, but you've got no idea how many people, when I meet them or they see my name on a show, they just assume that before I was married, my name was Nikki Webster. Really? <laughs> Definitely not Nikki Webster. All right. And then, actually, I'll just say for the benefit of our listeners offshore, because, you know, we've got people tuning in from overseas, Nikki Webster was, I think, 12 or something when That's she right. opened 
the uh, the Olympic Games, the Sydney Olympic Games in the opening ceremony, and they flew her around. No wonder she probably had PTSD for years. <laughs> they flew so her around this Nikki is not that Nikki. Great. No, definitely not. But it's amazing how many people actually, and even when I tell them I'm not that Nikki, they they actually don't believe me. It's so weird. So let's get that out of the way first. Right. But no, no, Bennett has always been my name. I never changed it when I was married. And, um, yeah, I, I, I started pretty young. I grew up in the country and my dad taught me to sing which is extraordinary really because there was no singing teachers in the country that he trusted to teach me to sing came down to university entered the Australian singing competition and won one of the major prizes in that at the opera house um and that took me to cabaret stages for years um, around the world one of my prizes was a a, a sort of a tour cabaret sort of uh, fabulous you won a yeah. prize and they put you to work <laughs> yeah well they kind of did well there was different prizes for different Different people it wasn't like here's the winner and then everyone else lost it was like you get the recording prize you get the live prize you get this you get this yeah so so I did um I did I did two years overseas and then it sounds like a sentence doesn't it I did two years it was actually amazing because you know in those days even it more so now but in those days it was hard for a young entertainer or a young performer anyway to sort of cut their teeth in a way that was a constant every day on stage every night on stage and I did this in Southeast Asia first and it was I was a baptism by fire, I can tell you that, you know. As a 19-year-old, I'm over in Southeast Asia sort of doing these shows to these people and really had no idea what I was doing, but it taught me so much and got back to Australia and cut a long story short, um, got a recording contract with Melodian Records, which was Molly Meldrum's part of Mushroom. And I, I started doing television, went into hair, the rock musical hair, and, yes, we took our clothes off every night. <laughs> That's the question that always gets asked when you tell people you were in here. Did you take your clothes off? Yes. yes yeah, that was the gig. Eight times a week. And do you know what the, the monetary allowance for our nudity allowance was in those days? $4.50. fifty. <laughs> $4.50 to $4.50 for getting your gear off. So, <laughs> so we all got per, our $4. Per show? Per show, yeah. Per yeah. week. No, I. Oh, oh, that's a good question. No, I think it was per show. I, I hope, hopefully, it was per show. It would be Isn't really that nudity insulting, per it? diems. <laughs> yeah, it was just per. Yeah, per nudity. <laughs> it was so, so and so arbitrary. Yeah, isn't it? It's just the. I I always wondered why they did it at all because it was so insulting. I kind of would have rather not been paid four dollars fifty to take my clothes yeah. off than to actually think, well, that's what you know we were four bucks fifty but anyway that was the day that was the time of course I don't think the latest production of hair actually that would have been very different I think but it still has the nudity doesn't it not for everybody this last one there were uh I think there were artists who had it written into their contract that they wouldn't do the nude scene but in the 90s there was no such thing as that kind of contract so we did the legit version I think you know we all just did the legit thing and it was uh, it was a funny story about that they actually asked us whether we wanted the first time to be on stage in front of the audience or whether they wanted it to whether we wanted it to be after being drunk the night before the show and we all decided that we'd do it the first time because I don't know it felt more creepy doing it in front of just us than it did in front of the audience it was kind of pervy or something I don't know anyway we did it in front of the audience for the first time but it was a family and friends show oh. and and it was in the round right so we were down and 
I was standing in the front row in the nude scene. This is a, I, I think I've had PTSD after, ever since. So my mum, my dad, my grandfather and my grandmother were coming to the show and they end up with my grandfather literally exactly in front of where I did, I did the nude scene. So for the first time in my life, I'm standing on stage instead of with my arms out doing the peace, love, freedom, and I'm standing straight in front of my grandfather. It was like, oh, my God. It was, it was yeah, yeah. See, see, if you'd done that today, it would have become a meme with, you know, like the behind shot and, and your grandfather's face just My grandfather's, with, with that's right, it totally says, would have been. My, she's come a long way. <laughs> So it was it was really quite that was a quite a traumatic opening night of hair but anyway it was it was you know it's a funny story. So you didn't think that through did you family and friends? Oh well they had to be there one day and I don't think it was ever going to be any less mortifying once they were there but why did my parents and grandparents get put right in the front row in the round so we were at ground I was at my crutch was at eye level with my grandfather. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It was just like, oh, God. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, I got over that. I got over that. And then <laughs> I left here after about a year and a half and, and went into lots of television. I started to do all those TV shows, you know, um, Steve Vizard in Melbourne tonight, all those sort of shows because that was, that was a great time in those days and then moved to Sydney to do corporate work and mm. continue the telly. Yeah. Then got a movie. Um, having I didn't have an agent or anything. I was on television one day in the midday show, and Shirley Barrett, who had written uh, Love Serenade, I don't know if you know that that movie, but she'd written that, and it had won a big prize at Cannes Film Festival. And um, Steven Spielberg and David Geffen said to her, "Look, we'd love to be involved in your next movie." And so she wrote another one, and she wrote the lead character of that movie, the lead female character of that movie, and she was writing it when she saw me on Midday. And I wasn't an actress at that time. I'd never really acted on anything much except Chances. I did Chances. <laughs> Do you remember that? Vaguely. They're staying. I think they looked at all the hair actors and, and thought, well, they're good for <laughs> they're used to I didn't take my clothes off, though. I wasn't one of those people. You didn't take a chance on Chances? No, no, no. I played, I, I played a milkmaid, which is... Don't, don't even, we're not going to go into that story. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, so Shirley was writing this character and when the movie was done and they were in uh, to casting stage, I got a call saying we, we'd like you to cast for a film. And having never been anything like that before, I thought, well, I'll be the singer in the corner in the five-second thing that lands on the floor. No, they wanted me to the, the the lead role which is the, the poster here that's that's the yeah, poster for the film that I did and um yeah it was a lead role of, of a character that was absolutely nothing like what I'm like except Shirley had this image before she knew me that I would be like that so you know it, the career kind of just developed on its own it did it did what it did and um and I did show TV shows and everything after that but it's just been it's been an interesting journey I think if you in the entertainment industry if you just let it let it come to you sometimes it does yeah yeah I think it's it, it's interesting and and um you, we will sort of go into where 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 you've where you've moved to because like a lot of performers now you've started you know writing directing and producing you know yeah. your own stuff and, and and certainly having had a corporate entertainment business myself mm. I know the the joy that comes from the juice of producing your own stuff yeah. and having that 
having that sort of that that creative yeah. autonomy. It's just like, you know what, I want to fucking do it this way. Absolutely. And I think having written all those shows for corporate for 20 years of corporate entertainment, mm. I didn't have to write scripts for those shows so much, but I think having written, directed and produced those shows gave me the background yeah. to, to write what has now become Invincible. And your baby, your special lady. love for you to tell us about your show Invincible. Yeah it, it, it's an extraordinary one. I'd been looking for a, somebody to write an inspirational show about for a couple of years by the time I sort of stumbled onto Helen's story. That was in 2010 so it was a long time before she became this revived hero like that that sort of really happened during the Me Too movement and then her death and then the movie um or different order to that but um so I I I bought an autobiography I was watching television one day a rerun of David Letterman and she was on she was on as a guest and I sat there on the couch and I thought oh I've got to look into this one this one you know my mum had been a big fan but I was a bit young to be a Helen Reddy fan, you know, in the 70s I was a kid. And um, I looked at her story and so she was a single mother. She got married very young. She she had a lot of illness when she was young, decided she didn't want to be a singer, then decided she sort of did, got married, had a baby. She'd been working on a little show, television show until that point, but Obviously, as a pregnant woman in the 70s, you could not be on TV. So she went to Sydney, started working there, and everybody there, especially the sort of very male-dominated music industry, just literally they didn't even remember her name a lot of the time. They just called her the chick singer. That was what she was. She was the girl singer. And she thought, I don't want to be the girl singer for the rest of my life. And she she really was quite an extraordinary person. She won singing competition. There are a lot of similarities between yeah. my career and Helen's career. Actually, so many similarities, it's really weird. She just got a lot more famous. Um, but she won a singing competition. She went overseas. When she got there, the prize wasn't there because they said, no, we weren't looking for a female singer. We wanted a boy band. So they they sent her back. They wanted to send her back home. And she she had $4 left um, and she had her daughter with her, her little girl with her, and she just decided to stay in New York. And for, year, for quite a few years it was brutally hard for her. You know, she couldn't get work because she didn't have a green card. She didn't know anyone there. She had no money, no friends, no nothing. And then finally she got a little bit of work, met her husband who would become her husband at a party and he was an artist manager and it kind of went on from there. Um, but it was a long time struggle and she couldn't convince him that, that, he was, that she was what it took to become a star. And she saw him getting all this work for his other artists and nothing for her. And it really almost nearly destroyed them. And then she got a phone call to do a TV show, like what I was doing in Melbourne, and kind of got discovered pretty much as soon as she stopped singing, the switch boards went nuts because she was like all the other female singers of the day were the big, you know, it was all 
makeup and hair and everything and she comes on almost no makeup that little short shaggy haircut that she had and and that voice you know that and almost an androgynous look because she's kind of really thin, rangy incredibly and, thin yes very yeah. yeah she did have an androgynous look and, and she bones you could cut glass yes. on yeah yes. So yeah. she had the look that set her apart. She had the voice that set her apart. And she had all that experience on TV back from Australia. She just was, she just nailed it. And so she got a recording contract um, and it sort of went from there. But, and then of course it was I Am Woman a couple of years later that just basically made her this massive star. But amazing. yeah, it was interesting finding that story because once she becomes a star, that's when her story really starts. Um and I think the movie went to sort of that point and then a tiny bit later, you know, I mean, it touched on what happened to her later, but the extraordinary part of Helen's story really starts after that point. And, uh, wow, when I read that story, I was like, I have to do this. I have to do this show. Yeah, it, it, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really interested in this, this notion of, because as you said, you said, when I started delving into uh, this this person's life, there was this almost like it's almost like a synchronicity. Yes, and I and I wonder because you know, and and I do want to I, I do want to delve into your process with this show and and talk about the the activism and the feminism and all of that. But I'm but I'm also interested in just for our listeners, yeah. what is that driver? from a performer's perspective that makes you look at an artist who is already out there, who has an established fan base, who has an established style, mm. and you think, because it's not about copying. Tributes no. are not about copying. They're about emulating. They're about distilling this, this thing. And, and that, you know, fans of the actual person will just lap up yes. this homage and yeah. so, you know, so, so I'm interested in like, you know, what was, what was your sort of connection and, you know, why did you think her story was important for you to tell as a performer? Okay. As I, I'm not sure that you can separate that as a performer from the, as a female performer. Ooh, um, okay. I think much more from a female performer's point of view. And there are so many, uh, as you said, Ben, there were so many instances when I was reading her biography that I thought, wow, there are so many similarities between what happened in her career and mine, the steps, the, the things that happened, the way it went. And I, well, the Me Too movement was already pretty much full swing. And she came up during the, that second wave of feminism, the 70s wave of feminism, which was the, the whole, you know, it was, a, it was big, you know, it was, it was life-changing for so many generations of women afterwards. And we were going through the Me Too movement when I really decided to take this bull by the horns and really start to launch this into theatres. Mm. And so there was no more poignant story than hers because she was here hailed as one of and deservingly hailed as one of the strongest female icons of the 70s and looking back even now you know but her life was oh, extraordinarily dominated and altered by her husband and even her career depended on him and there was no way the boys club of the music industry they wouldn't even talk to her about what 
single she was going to release, what, what her contract, they wouldn't even talk to her. It was just talk to the husband, talk to the husband, talk to the husband. And you've got this remarkable woman who was one of the very first women ever in the United States, as an Australian in the United States, she was one of the very first women to ever hold a credit card and a mortgage in her own name, right? So you've got this, this yeah, and yet they still wanted to talk to her husband about her own career. Um, when she, I've got this great story that I tell, and I'll just give a little bit in this because it's it, it really shows um this this of all things made me go wow i have to tell this story she she went up to us she won first australian to one win a grammy award and she went up to the stage and for the first when she first she planned a speech and she had this meek little voice and she said i would like to thank my husband because he makes my success possible and the audience just sort of went and then she like thought about it for a second and she she held up the statue and she said, and I would like to thank God because she makes everything possible. And it was this moment when America just went insane and it didn't matter because she became a, a massive star anyway. But there was, this, was in, this was in Nashville in the Bible Belt when this happened and it was a, a, a groundbreaking thing. And here's this woman doing all this stuff and standing up for women everywhere and women's rights. And she was attending rallies. Every interview she ever did, she'd just throw down that gauntlet and they hated her. You know, they there was the patriarchy hated her. They 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 called they they called her a bra burner and a man basher and all that sort of stuff. But all she was actually really doing was saying, well, you know, why can't I do what a man can do? You know, why can't I do that? And that's all she ever said. She never went really hard. Um, well, nowadays we wouldn't look at it as hard anyway. But, um, yeah, so I looked at all that and I thought, how can this story not be told in its entirety? Not just mm. not just the little bit about how she made it to become a star, but what happened to her afterwards, you know, as a, at the hands of her then ex-husband you know and the the demise of her career and her you know she just had to she wanted to leave it all behind in the end because it had been so damaging and to soul destroying to her what happened later which is in the show and you'll have to come along and see it to see yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait I can't yeah yeah and, and I'm I'm curious is uh, so you're sitting on the couch you're watching this rerun of Letterman and you're going, oh, my God, th there it is. Yep. There yep. it is. By the bio, you're diving in, you're going, oh, my God, synchronicity, sliding doors. I've got to tell this woman's story. And but now here we are in the era and, and the, the work that, that I'm involved in is very, you know, pro-women. I'm involved in stuff at International Women's Day every year or this sort of stuff. How is it that... The pace of change between 1975 and 2022 has been so glacial um, and that we are so incredibly, her story is so relevant. Yes, yes, it really is. It's, it's so just relevant today. Yeah. I mean, she was such a trailblazer. Yes, yes, she was. And so has did that sort of spark some kind of feminist uh, stuff in, in in you did it kind of get those juices completely complete I've always lived my life I mean I I chose very very young never to be defined by my gender it was just something that was never going to happen I just I you know I went through what all women do I'm just gonna do one thing here just a second I'm just gonna 
the door's banging, so I want to stop it doing that. Um, yeah, so I, I chose very young to not let gender stop me doing things. Yeah, And I just went about being who I was regardless of being female or male. And then... So I never really thought about feminism. It didn't, it didn't, do you know what I mean? It didn't occur to me because I actually hadn't let that actually impact in my life. Yeah. Now it probably did, but I hadn't chosen to focus on whatever impacts that it had. So when I, when I did read her story, it was probably the first time I'd really thought about that from, from, really thought about that and 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 what had had to be endured by the generations of women before me who really made my life and what I had chosen to do and been able to do they had made that possible so I wouldn't have been able to not think about it if they hadn't already done what they did and she was so instrumental in that you know Mm. so I thought especially now with everything that's happening now because we are in the third wave now um undoubtedly in the third wave and it wouldn't have been possible without the those people without people like helen you know and the fact that i am woman is still the anthem this still that there's never been another one and i i must say i must say to to give credit um to the other songwriter of i am woman ray burton who's a um australian musician and songwriter Mm. and he co-wrote that song yeah so you know you cannot I mean Helen didn't write it on her own mm-hmm. um she had the concept for the lyrics and what it meant and she was the one that pioneered it becoming a hit and her and her husband made sure it did become a hit but you know that was co-written by a man so she did have you know it was all blended it wasn't uh, she wasn't a man hater she was married three times <laughs> so you know um it's yeah it did make me think right I've got to tell this story Mm. um and I was met with resistance I really oh I was met with so much resistance I I did a little tour of Queensland and I I I when you could get in there darling when you could get in there when when we should get in (laughs) it was 2016 when there were no border closures and um, I did a tour of Queensland and I realized that people were loving the story even if they didn't know much about her or even if they really didn't know that they recognized her songs of course once people get into the show they realize that they recognize most of her songs but until they go they think they only know I Am Woman or perhaps Delta Dawn Um, but of course they know them all once they hear them they just don't remember that they were hers and yeah so I, I, I realized that this show was going to be a big success and I thought right I want to take it to the next level and I tried to get I, I reached out to some promoters and I, 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 I told you I've told you this before but I, I was told by one promoter who I won't mention <laughs> I do have a promoter now and that's wonderful he's amazing but I was told by one promoter that the words were paraphrasing but very close um, who on earth would want to come and see a show performed by a woman in her 50s about a woman in her 70s. That was the, that was what I got. And and I hung up at that point and thought, this is going to be really hard. You know, people, male promoters, because they're all male, right? They, at that point, this was quite a few years, three, four years ago, Mm. they just didn't get the importance. 
They didn't get the relevance. They didn't get how much women were going to love this show. I, Nathie, at the end of each show, I've got women in tears, standing up, singing I Am Woman with me for the second time. We do it twice at the end because they just want it again. And they're fish pumping the air and they're singing, they're bawling their eyes out. And and I, and I thought, you know, this particular promoter had zero clue of the kind of impact that her story was going to make on people and the kind of um, response that it was going to get. That ain't no Everywhere it goes, people just absolutely love this show. And, I I mean, it's partly the way I tell it. And the script is, I have to say, even though I wrote the script, (laughs) it is exceptional. But I had a lot of exceptional material to work with. And and because I identify with her so deeply, Mm. I tell it with a lot of passion every single time it doesn't matter how many times I'm on that stage it's always the same amount of passion that I tell it with and it moves me every time it doesn't just move the audience it moves me and I tell it as me talking about her so I don't I don't impersonate her oh okay so this is an interesting thing how how have you brought her to life for the audience within the production okay so when I first you started look like her when you're in the wig I do. I know. You really do. That's that was the freaky thing. I know. I put that wig on, and somehow my I've got. I'm one of those lucky people as an actress. My face changes depending on what my hair is doing. I, I don't know. It just changes. You know those things that recognise you at the airport. They never, never recognise me <laughs> unless I've got my hair exactly the same as my photo. They don't know who I am. But um, uh, yeah, I I do look a lot like her on stage, and I dress as her, and I dress in clothes that she would have worn. Not exact copies of her, but in clothes she would have worn. But I talk about her, and there's a reason. Mm. I did the first the 2016 tour. Um sort of more or less talking as her and it just felt wrong I was having people because I was so emotionally involved and some and a lot of her fans hadn't seen her for so long it was like this suspension of disbelief and I'd get people coming up to me at the end of the show thinking I was her even though she was already 70 when I did that and I thought I this isn't this this is just not right I can't be doing this so when I I really did the show in earnest and I wrote the long the full show I thought no I'm just going to talk about her and the funny thing is that when I talk about her I use my own voice but when I sing her songs I use a blend of my own voice and her voice because it's very hard to sing in Helen's voice she had this voice that it's uncopyable. I, I got it close, <laughs> and then I just, and then I learned something very interesting. I learned that in two thousand and twenty-one or twenty-two now, an audience can't sit and listen to a show of a voice like that anymore. They need power. They need dynamics. They need bit of guts they need all that sort of thing so I realized we've been programmed we've been been programmed culturally and stylistically 
popular and music has yeah. changed and it has changed so it. much and I was all the passion in the moments of the music wasn't there when I wasn't giving it my all as a singer because mm. Helen had a quite a small voice amazing voice I love it but it was a small voice I've got a massive big voice mm. I sound more like Shirley Bassey than Helen Reddy in my natural <laughs> sort of but um but I, I had to make a decision and I made a decision and I said to my musical director that day, ignore what I do because this time, because we weren't getting the, we weren't getting the standing ovation. Mm. And I said, ignore what I do. I'm going to do a blend of me and Helen today. And I did. And from that point, there's not one show we've, we, have, we haven't had a standing ovation. Oh, wow. Yeah. The, the, the passion comes out where I let, when I let myself be in the story as well. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, so I, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's telling it, it's using her as a, as a conduit or a portal yes. to take her story yes. a, out, to, out to a contemporary audience. That's exactly that, what it is. It's that, uh, that's the artistry. That you have to take in. some artistic licence. You just yeah. have to or you can't make it come across. It, it yeah. just doesn't mm. come across like it would have in the 70s plus I'm not Helen so you know it's it's different yeah. So, yeah. And I, I, found- I like that because you're not saying to the audience you know I, I am Helen and this is a rinky dinky impersonation yeah this is this in it's it's true it's trueness yes is, is a tribute and a, and a homage and 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 telling her story but it's what I what I really wanted to pick up on that um that, that artistry about writing and producing a show from a performer's perspective mm-hmm. is understanding the energy exchange with an audience. Yes. You know, just knowing that an audience needs, they need a different audience. Yes, they do. Today. There's a song called Somewhere in the Night. We finished the, the first. So the way the show is I don't do the songs in chronological order at all. She had, this is the most amazing thing. When I was writing the show, I had this incredible story and I'm thinking how am I gonna because this show runs like a what's the how would I describe it it runs like a one woman musical it it, it, it's it travels through her life and where this incredibly when I was listening to all her songs choosing the songs for the musical 19 songs um she had a song for every single moment of her life, which she didn't record at that moment. They were all recorded in all different parts of her life. But, like, for example, when her husband destroys her, she, there's a song called No Way to Treat a Lady, which is actually my favourite Helen's song. Yes. And so we put that there. And so every song in the show is put in where it means something to that point, no matter when it was recorded, no matter when to it was. her a- story. Yeah, do yeah. her story. And yeah. so I, I wrote it like that. And um, I can't remember what I was going to say now, but it was it was an incredible journey to find the, the flow of the show through the story, then the song, then the story, then the song. And the words, the lyrics of the song, because of where I put each song, actually are like part of the script. Does that yeah. make sense? So they sort of... To take over from the script and it's sort of like the script to music almost but with these really famous songs yeah um and I it was just a uh, it was an extraordinary writing process and stumbling on those songs for whatever bit there's even a song where she meets her husband 
um, at a party, which this is a, it's a funny, it's a long story and I won't tell it now, but um, that she did a song later, much later in her career that never became a hit and it was called Save Me. And it was about meeting somebody at a party and them literally saving the life that you're living. And that's what he did. And so we put Save Me in when that happened. So I'm quite protective of the script of this one because it's the script more than the songs. When I met my producer, my promoter now, he said, wait, how many songs are in it? And I told him and he said, no, but it's a two-hour show. And I said, yeah, I know, but the rest of it's a story. It's a story. And he said, no, 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 that's not going to work. People aren't going to sit through that much talking. (laughs) And the first time he came and saw it, his eyes were just like, Okay, now I understand because this is not a tribute show. This is a, it's a, it's a musical, I guess. But I'm just experience. Yeah, yes, it really. It's a night with. It's a, it's a, it's an immersion. It feels like it totally is, and and I think even though I'm saying her and Helen and she, people almost identify with me as her at that time. So it's um yeah it's an it's ex- quite extraordinary and the love that and, and as you were saying coming back to that original question which seems like 10 minutes ago now <laughs> um, <laughs> um coming back to that yeah the connection with the audience is extraordinary and young women who like they will we did a mother's day show last year and a whole lot of young women brought their mothers and you had women, young women who had never really heard of her. They kind of knew I Am Woman because of the reemergence of it. And they were just absolutely gobsmacked by this story. And you, it, it's just, it touches everyone. Men, you know, we've got men up there singing I Am Woman. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And the funny thing is that there, um, we have the endorsement of the Worldwide Fan Club. And oddly enough, there's not really another Helen Reddy show in the whole world. And I found that, yeah, I, I was I was shocked by that, but I kind of can understand it because it's my script that holds it together. It wouldn't be a show on its own just singing Helen songs. Yeah. That can't that that would never be a thing. Yeah, so and that's and that's where your you know your experience in writing and producing stuff. And acting. You have to be an actress to do this show. Yeah. You can't a singer, there's no way a singer could perform this show it's no just- you could do a set of her songs but yeah. that's not what we're talking about that's here. right that's right um, yeah and, and it's funny what you talked about that ain't no way to treat a lady because I was of course you know when I knew that we were going to have this conversation I went back and I was listening oh, dun, 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 <laughs> and I actually start because because I was a kid in the 70s yep, me too uh well into into a teenager um, and, you know, and I remember her songs back then, but listening to the lyrics through mm. a different mm. ear now. Mm. And it's really uh, interesting. Angie Baby, <sighs> which is That's the best. I love I mean, it so much. But, but also Delta Dawn. And they're both songs where women are almost disenfranchised from mm. their own lives and their own realities. And also Ruby Redress. So she Helen talks about this in her biography and she calls it her trio of wounded women or right. wounded ladies or something. Mm-hmm. I can't remember her exact words that she used, but she calls it her trio of, of wounded ladies. And so Ruby Redress has a story about a woman who was incredibly hard done by uh, I My interpretation is that she was made pregnant by a man and then he just racked off uh then you've got um Angie Baby who's 
you know, a very challenged teenage young adult um, who has, yeah, visions of murdering people. And and then you've got... Um, uh, which I mean, was it's there? really heavy There stuff. was three. There was, wait a second, there was Angie Baby, Leave Me Alone, and Delta Dawn. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then oh, Delta yeah. Dawn. Yeah. So Delta Dawn had a similar story to, to Ruby Redress. Yeah. yeah. And here's this woman who was like a feminist icon singing those songs. Yeah. It, it, it's extraordinary. And yeah. um, the, I, I was listening to, and you talked about that ain't no way to treat a lady. And then I was just thinking about the messages for young women today and them coming along and hearing those lyrics through mm. fresh ears mm. starts with, I guess it was yourself you were involved with. And I was just like, that should be the pinup poster song for dealing with narcissists. Well, it was, it should, <laughs> if once you see the show, you will understand why it sits where it sits because her husband, even though he was very instrumental and, you know, she acknowledges and always did acknowledge that without the, 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 the double, the, the he as the manager and her as the artist, it would never have happened for her. Right. Like it couldn't right. have happened without him. She fully acknowledges that. But then he developed addictions and stuff and their marriage went very, very south. And he, during that time of addiction, um, he died just very, very recently, actually, a few weeks ago. And during that time of addiction, he um, did things which were fairly unconscionable. And um, the song means so much once I've told that story, because every single word in the song, even though she didn't record that song at that time. She recorded that yeah. song way earlier, you know, way earlier. And But every single word is like, as I said before, an extension of the script. Every single word could have been written about her and what happened to her. And, yes, you're right, dealing with a narcissist and dealing with that person, here's this incredible feminist icon totally been destroyed by a man. Yeah. And it's like, and this is why her story is so extraordinary because it's so... 10 dimensional this is not some superficial story about a feminist woman who you know blah 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 and this is the weird thing maybe when I first toured Queensland and maybe you should expect this a little bit of Queensland but when we first toured Queensland it was before she'd made her resurgence before the movie happened yeah. everywhere we went we, we were up in somewhere like Charters Towers or somewhere right up north <laughs> And we were having a beer in, in, in the pub, myself and my female MD at the time. I, I was just travelling with her and uh, and th these full-on blokes, you know, the wife beater shirts and the, the whole, drinking their beers, and they said, oh, what are you girls doing here, love? And we went, oh, we're here doing a show about Helen Reddy. And and they were like, oh, that wasn't she that lesbian? And I'm like, oh, my God, she was, like, married three times. <laughs> You know, yeah, she was, yeah, it was really an odd, the way people perceived her. And as you said right at the beginning of this, the leaving Australia thing and the way people perceived her, I quite often at shows I have, because I also do this show on ships, I, a very reduced, a 45-minute version of it on certain cruise lines, and Americans come to that and Australians as well. And the Americans just adore her, as you said. But the Australians in the audience, and this happens on land as well, will come up to me after the show. People that were her age, people that were there when she left Australia, people who were there when the press brutalised her for losing, mm -hmm. leaving Australia and calling her 
all these hideous names because she had to leave because no one was taking her seriously here. And they come up to me at the end of the show and they're in tears and I'm thinking, oh, they're in tears because of, you know, what happened to her. But no, they're in tears after the show because they were guilty of thinking that about her too um, until they hear why she couldn't come home to Australia. There's a big story about why she couldn't come home. No one knows it. Yeah. Until they see the show. <laughs> Until they see the show, and, yeah. and you know, and and this and this is this is the show, and it, it's really exciting to think that yeah, when you when you look at the scope of this woman's talent, that uh, and uh, that no one else is telling her story, that you have the honour of, yeah. of it is an honour telling of of telling her story, and I never forget that. It, it feels like an honour every time I walk onto the stage. It really does. Such a delight. Number one, connecting with you, Nikki, but but also just to talking about talking about your process in this amazing show, this tribute to this incredible woman, this female performer, this you know feminist icon uh, that um, that is one the only type of its show running in the world mm, today. Yeah. And I know that um, for for our Australian audiences, and then twenty twenty three America, look out. Um, <laughs> Nikki is coming, Nikki slash Helen is coming to your shores. So where can we, where, where can people find you? And in the, in the coming weeks and months, where can people see this amazing show? Well, they can find out about the shows. We're adding shows all the time. During COVID, it's been a, an interesting thing where we're, we're, we're booking and cancelling shows, but the shows do remain up to date on my website, which is www.nikkibennett.com, and you just go to the Invincible, the Helen Reddy story page of that website. There's a Facebook page as well, Invincible, the Helen Reddy story, and that has up-to-date um shows as well and then on the 19th of February we're at the State Theatre in Sydney which is I'm very excited about because which I will be at I know it's I'm, I can't wait to do that one that is that I mean it's an iconic stunning theatre and to do to perform Helen there at that she would she would adore the fact that that there was a show about her at the State Theatre I mean that's that's just going to be a wonderful show. So get along to that one if you can. And you can, there, there are ticket links on the website too. So they'll take you through to the link. And what about you've recorded an album of these songs too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, so- it was a live recording. And um, so because I, I, the way I sing it, I wanted to do it the way I do it live. I wanted to have that that mm. kind of recording rather than me go into a studio and try and sound like Helen. Because if you want Helen sounding like Helen, you can buy a Helen Ready album, right? Yeah. So this is the way that I do Helen in the show. It's live. It's a really great album. I was so happy with it when it got done. So, yeah. But um, I don't sell that online. I only sell at the moment. I'm only selling that at the moment uh, at shows. Oh, at- right. So, people, you've heard it here first. You've got to get along to see the show. Yeah. To buy, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and and of course, I I played little snippets from from the show throughout um, throughout yeah. the episode today. Nikki Bennett, 
thank you so, so much for coming on the Suck It and See podcast. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, I'll see you on stage. Yes, you will. I'll see you in the audience. You'll be singing along. I will be singing along. I'll be screaming and crying. Probably. <laughs>